0: A few of us, myself, Jason Miller, Justin Clark, and Mark Meadows, gathered um, in a room off the map room uh, to, to listen uh, to, to whatever Rudy presumably wanted to say to the
1: president. Was there anyone in that conversation who, in your observation, had had, had too much to drink?
0: Uh. Or Giuliani
1: tell me more about that what was your observation about his uh, uh, potential intoxication during that that discussion about what the president should say uh, when he's addressed the nation on election night
0: and the mayor was definitely intoxicated but i do not um, know his level of talk intoxication when he spoke uh, with the president for example
1: That was an excerpt from one of the video clips played at Monday's January 6th committee hearing in which Donald Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, recounts the debate that went on within the White House on election night. Stepien and other top campaign aides were telling Trump to hold off declaring victory that night, that there were still lots more votes to be counted and that his slender but steadily slipping margins were starting to fade away. But Trump would have none of it and listen instead to his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, quote, obviously intoxicated, according to his campaign aide, Jason Miller, who told the president to claim he was the rightful winner in an election marked by rampant voter fraud. It was a critical moment when Trump's bogus claims of fraud, pushed in turn by his drunk lawyer, became amplified to the whole country resulting ultimately in the tragic events of January 6th. Is the committee building an airtight case against the former president? We'll get perspectives from two veteran legal observers, Matt Miller, the former chief of public affairs of the Justice Department during the Obama administration, and Saul Weisenberg, a criminal defense lawyer and a former top deputy to Whitewater Independent Counsel Ken Starr, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend
2: the Constitution of the United States. So help, so, help so, help so help me God.
3: So help me God. So help me God. So help me God.
2: So help me God.
1: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
4: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. And
1: we are joined by the aforementioned uh, Matt Miller and Saul Weisenberg, uh, Skullduggery regulars. Uh, Matt and Saul, welcome back to the pod.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Lots to dissect from today's hearing. A couple of hours, a lot of video clips, some live testimony. Matt and Saul, give us your takes to start out. Matt, you go first.
0: So, look, I I think the committee has has done a great job at basically framing up what would be a criminal case if this, in fact, can be a criminal case, which I know sounds like a weird way to frame it. But here's what I mean. They have done a good job. If you look at the possible criminal statutes that people talk about here, conspiracy to defraud the United States or or to obstruct an act of Congress, they clearly have structured their public presentation around. Proving to the public, pressuring the Justice Department, showing the world that Trump committed a crime. I think that's why you saw all of the, you saw the presentation today focus on all of the testimony from Bill Barr and others showing that they told Trump that he lost the election and they told Trump the claims of voter fraud that he kept making were false. And so the implication being that when Trump continued to make those claims and when Trump pressured Mike Pence and when Trump set into motion this conspiracy, to overturn the election on January 6th. And I mean mean that sort of absent from the assault on the Capitol, but the political legal effort they were undertaking, that that was a crime. Now, I think there still remains the question whether that is a crime, whether that can be a crime or whether it's a political act. But to the extent that you believe you can write an indictment around those acts, they are, I think, checking every box.
1: Saul, can they write an indictment around these acts?
3: Well, I mean, obviously you're passing over the most important part of the clip that you play with respect to Giuliani, which is if he was drunk, he has diminished capacity. So that will actually help him if he's indicted. And also-
1: Will help him doesn't necessarily help Trump, who listened to the drunk guy.
3: Uh, He's also giving testimony about him as giving drunks a bad name, which is not good either. But I do basically agree with Matt that, I mean, DOJ is going to have to write any indictment. And I think that the portrayal so far of the connection between President Trump and the call to people to come to Washington to disrupt the certification process has been made very well, particularly in the first day's episode. But making a criminal case given the law of seditious conspiracy in this country is going to be very difficult. And I've always thought from the beginning that the focus needs to be strictly from the criminal law perspective on Trump's knowledge of what people like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were doing. Now, we have some new stuff from the first night that I didn't know about indicating that Trump apparently was given information about what was going on with Pence and what was going on in the Capitol. We knew about that he had some information, but specifically the information about Pence and his comments about Pence. That was new. And that could be relevant to a charge such as as aiding and abetting. You can aid you can aid and abet something, even if it's already going on or been going on for a long time. I try to focus on traditional criminal law and the hurdles in prosecuting somebody like Trump because of the incredibly protective law of seditious conspiracy. So.
4: But Saul, isn't Seditious conspiracy. Are you setting the bar too high? Isn't that that's the toughest case that they would have to make? But what about obstructing Congress, defrauding the United States? What about some of those lesser? That's a good point. uh,
3: Obstructing an official proceeding is part of, as you know, the seditious conspiracy statute is very broadly worded, and there are a lot of things defined by Congress as seditious conspiracy that you and I wouldn't necessarily, normal people wouldn't. Think of that way. For example, if you conspire to obstruct a, a governmental function, so you're so you're right. They could be closer in that regard. One thing I think is interesting that no one is talking about is, is that it's so obviously an effort to influence uh, Merrick Garland. I saw a piece today online where uh, Raskin, Congressman Raskin, is is openly talking about that—an effort to encourage uh, Merrick Garland to bring an indictment. It's interesting that nobody thinks about that in the same sense that they think of Trump constantly talking about, why isn't John Durham doing anything? So that's a whole aspect that you don't see much focus on right now.
4: Well, Matt, I just want to follow up with Matt, because you were the director of public affairs for a, uh, an attorney general, and you know a lot about Merrick Garland and this Justice Department. Do you think in any way Merrick Garland would be influenced by these hearings. I think I've seen reporting people quoted who know him well who said, if anything, it'll push him in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to look, he doesn't want it to be perceived as if he's being influenced by a congressional hearing.
0: Yeah, I don't completely buy that. I think every, um, well, first of all, every attorney general always says, well, we follow the facts and the law and we don't take actions because of political pressure. And that's largely true, but they also pay attention to pressure. They respond to pressure somewhat. He is probably the least pressurable AG in my memory, uh, in, in at least the last 30 years or so. But that doesn't mean he's completely immune from from uh, political pressure. So I do agree with Saul in one sense. I think the point of these committee hearings are twofold. Number one, to create a public record. This is going to be the defining historical record of what happened on January 6th. And that is, it, that is significant, whether it leads to immediate accountability for any of the actors or not. And then I think the second thing is very much to put pressure on Merrick Garland and the Justice Department to to indict former President Trump. And I don't find that to be inappropriate. There's a difference between Congress putting pressure and and asking the Justice Department to file charges and the president to do so. And the main reason is that the Attorney General does not work for Congress. He doesn't have to be responsible. He doesn't have to worry about Congress firing him. I mean, there's the threat of impeachment and conviction, but that's not real in any any meaningful sense. And Congress has a long history of doing this, pressuring AGs to do things, and AGs uh, typically don't really care. So I, I do think that they are, are mounting a, a public case uh, intended to pressure the Attorney General. And I think the, the one, in the one sense they've been successful, this will now be the defining act of Merrick Garland's tenure at the Justice Department, barring some cataclysmic terrorist attack or something that we don't anticipate uh, right now. They have firmly put this uh, on his desk as the thing for which he will be known which is to some extent fair and to some extent not. It may be that the investigators that are investigating this case never present him with a recommendation to pursue an indictment because they don't believe the facts and the law warrant it, in which case it's a little unfair to serve this up to him, but that's life at at the top of the Justice Department.
2: Let's go back to the, the two purposes that you articulated. And and the first one is the one that's getting a lot of short shrift right now. Everyone seems to be focusing on whether or not the committee is able to build a criminal indictment, but very little on whether or not it has the ability to effectuate any other consequences for President Trump. Do you think that the committee fails if Merrick Garland doesn't issue an indictment?
0: No. I think that's too that that is a a bar you can't set for them because they don't control Merrick Garland. He doesn't work for them, and let's not forget Merrick Garland has better investigative resources than the than the than the committee has. So it's not up to the committee to generate the evidence that the Justice Department would use any indictment. So no, I, I don't think this should be the committee's primary responsibility. Though clearly they see this as at least in the short term the most important thing they can do.
2: So. In the absence of that sort of metric, if you want, for the success or failure of the committee, how do we judge whether or not the committee is actually doing its job or accomplishing anything?
0: There are lots of ways you can look at congressional investigating committees. One is unearthing information that leads to new legislative acts of Congress. That seems unlikely here. There may be changes to the Electoral Counting Act. That may come, but they would come probably absent this investigation anyway. The other is whether they uncover new facts that are important for the public to know and lay them out in a compelling fashion. And I don't think there's any argument they have done that already in the two days of these hearings. Uh, There's several more hearings to go. And of course, there will be a big report at the end of it. So we will know more about Trump's actions. Although we knew the broad strokes pretty well. And, and I think I actually think the moment for accountability was the second impeachment. That was the moment for national accountability, not a criminal investigation. And we missed it. But we will know more about his actions. And importantly, we will know more about the actions of all the other players around him, some of whom have have escaped, I think, public scrutiny in a way that they won't when we see all of the evidence at the end of this work. Now, I know that's unsatisfying for a lot of people. You want to see these folks in handcuffs, but. Not every problem in America is a criminal problem. Not every act of political corruption or moral transgression is a criminal problem. And so I don't think that's the right prism through which to judge this.
3: There you go again, channeling Bill Barr. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. God save me.
1: <laughs> Miller. Well, hey, Bill Barr is looking better today with his uh, testimony than uh, he might have been before. Couple of points. First of all, on the pressure on Garland. There's a bit of a looming time bomb at a left field, I think, that's there. And that is that from all indications, the Hunter Biden case is coming to a closure and likely is, you know, widely expected to uh, result in criminal charges against the president's son. And I'm just imagining the optics (laughs) of the Garland Justice Department bringing a criminal case against Hunter Biden before Donald Trump and what the reaction is going to be in the Twitterverse and on the cable channels. I mean, whatever the pressure is right now, I think it gets ramped up a lot. If that scenario plays out the way but I think, I think, a lot think of it, makes it expect
3: it to. I, mean, I think if that happens, uh, it gives Garland a lot of protection in a way. I mean, it really, some, you know, he's showing that he's not afraid to go after the president's son.
1: Yeah. Well, he didn't have much choice um, on this one. I mean, the, there was an ongoing investigation, and he did make the right choice in not ditching the, uh, the U.S. attorney who was conducting the investigation that gave him. But, but you know, look, a lot's going to depend on what that looks like. Is it a plea deal? Is there any prison time? Is it just the taxes for Hunter Biden, or does it include foreign lobbying and, uh, you know, money laundering, other all those things we don't know. But I just think it's just something to think about. But the other point I want to make is just to drill down on the on the criminal exposure because it seemed to me the committee today it was focused very much on what Trump was told and this gets to mens rea. What did Trump have a reasonable belief that there was actual fraud in there or was he, you know, willfully ignoring all the evidence in order to promote a uh, bogus case? And You know, the question is, does having a lineup of his attorney general, Bill Barr, his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, you know, his other campaign lawyers like this guy, uh, Hirschman, who I guess was a White House lawyer. There was another campaign lawyer having one after another. All of them tell him you lost the election. There's no evidence of fraud. Is that enough to show that Trump was lying when he repeatedly asserted there was fraud. Saul?
3: Well, in the words of my favorite former president, I'm glad you asked that question because it's a great question. The answer is, I think it depends upon what you would be prosecuting Trump for, because I actually, after listening today, think they're also uh, looking at Uh, an angle having to do with the potentially fraudulent uh, solicitation of funds. So they're actually, again, from the DOJ criminal perspective, that could be very interesting, not only in light of what he's being told, but also if he knows where the money is going. But at a broader point, I I was really struck by this because I don't think it does make much difference. Uh, First of all, even if everybody told Trump or 90 percent, Of the people he talked to said these allegations are baseless. They're just rhinos in his view. I mean, you can make a case that Trump believes what he wants to believe. But here's the thing. Let's say that Trump really believed that he won the election and really believed there was fraud. It doesn't excuse what he did on January 6th. I don't care if he thought he was the winner.
1: But is there criminal exposure for lying Based on the testimony of Bill Barr at all? What statute? What statute? Lying to who? Well, he was lying to Brad Raffensperger for one. That's, but yeah, but that's not. That's, I that's, mean, he's not. He he wasn't sworn. But that's the premise of of, of every criminal case that Trump knowingly promoted falsehoods in order to cling so. to power. If he genuinely believed that there was fraud, I'm not sure that. You know, any of these criminal cases. Um,
4: right. But he wouldn't really. be charged with lying.
2: No, no, no. I know. But it's a predicate. It's a
1: predicate to bring a criminal case against no, him. It isn't. I
2: don't know if I if I genuinely believe that the million dollars in the bank is mine. I don't get to steal it.
1: That's theft. I mean, I'm, uh, you'd have to. I mean, it's an element of any of any charge you would try to bring against him.
3: There are, a lot of pres- there are a lot of presidents who believe, or presidential candidates who believe they were defrauded in an election. Nixon believed that you know, he really won the election. This is the only one in history who has tried to, if the charges are, are true, and, and, and there's no question that he summoned people to D.C. to interfere with the certification process. To me, it does not matter if he felt he really won. He doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to summon people to obstruct the certification. Now, you got to prove that. And that's more. Well, that's he more
1: summoned them with his tweet. Is that sufficient proof?
3: No, it's not sufficient. You've got to actually show uh, not if you're talking about aiding and betting, you've got to show knowledge and some kind of action to promote it. And he's very good historically at insulating himself. But nevertheless, I think we're a little bit closer to that than I thought we were a few days ago. Just based on what I've
1: heard. Well, you know, there were two events on January 6th the rally, which, as much nonsense as was spewed, was, you know, ultimately First Amendment protected activity, political activity, Completely. and the violence that took place at the Capitol. If he's summoning people to a rally, a political rally, it's kind of hard to make a criminal case about that, right? Um, absolutely so then the question is is he summoning people to to stage a riot and you know there i don't think we've seen the evidence i mean you know they showed the proud boys and the oath keepers the other day uh, meeting but they did not show communications with roger stone or anybody else in trump world so drawing that connection is tenuous at this point what they can show is the efforts to obstruct the pre January six efforts to obstruct the um, or change the outcome of the election, and then the efforts to obstruct the events on January six through John Eastman and the pressure on Mike Pence. But that that seems like a less sexy criminal case than fomenting the violence.
3: It's also less criminal. <laughs> I mean, to me, that that's a big step away from, you know, having knowledge that you're going to have people literally try to physically obstruct and delay and doing something to aid that. That's very different. I'm very unimpressed generally with all the stuff about how, you know, Eastman says you can do this, Mr. Vice President. That doesn't do much for me again from the criminal law side.
1: Matt, you agree with that?
0: I do. Look, I I think if you were to find a piece of evidence that Trump uh, knew that the Proud Boys were coming to Washington to break into the Capitol, to foment a riot, to obstruct the count and was encouraging that, I think that'd be a pretty good criminal case. I'm skeptical we'll find we'll see that evidence because to Saul's point, he's always pretty good about kind of talking in code and and saying, let's let's march to the Capitol, which could be let's march to the Capitol to protest outside the Capitol, which is a completely legitimate political act so if you don't have that nexus to violence and you start to get to these other questions of they basically all boil down to is stealing an election is attempting to steal an election without violence is attempting to steal election an election through these other means a crime in some form or fashion and you see all you see tons of my former colleagues at the department saying yes it can be and coming up with theories it, uh, of why it can be but Uh, like with Saul, that leaves me a little cold. No one's ever been charged with that crime before. There's no case law on it. And we have seen the Supreme Court over the years be pretty skeptical about trying to shoehorn political acts into criminal uh, law and throwing convictions back in the face of the Justice Department. So I think that's why you've seen some of the hesitance from, from DOJ. Look, they've been good about letting us know what they're investigating. When there were these reports that people in the Trump orbit had submitted, at least to the National Archives, these false slate of electors, which is a crime, right? That's submitting, you know, submitting false documents to the government. That's a crime. People have been prosecuted with for for decades. The Justice Department came out and said they were investigating that. We're pretty clear, and you haven't seen them say the same things about these other potential crimes. And not only have they not said it but you haven't seen anybody in Trump's order been pulled into the grand jury for it. And that makes me think that they might be skeptical of that interpretation as well. So what would you
4: need to specifically find that nexus to violence? Uh, What would Trump, I mean, he wouldn't have had to sit down with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and plan the whole day. Surely it would be short of that. If he knew they were going up there, if there were some conversation in which he said going
1: up there to commit violence. That's the test. They can go up there. People go up to the Capitol to protest all the time. That's First Amendment protected activity as well. It's that they're going there to breach the Capitol, to storm in and to threaten lawmakers
3: and, and to obstruct in the sense of stopping, stop right. the seal, stop the process. And yes, that is that is more difficult. Well, there were
1: definitely efforts to do that. Wasn't, uh, you know, weren't there calls to, you know, Eastman was trying to get Pence to just delay the proceeding. Right. If they or Giuliani was if they can get they can just have more time, they could find a few more senators or something.
3: You know, yes, my my sense is that, look, we've got the first primetime night of the hearings we've got today. They're not. Yeah, there's some things we aren't going to we don't know about yet. But I think in terms of bombshell stuff about the actual violence in the day, I think we would have heard more about it on the first night. What we did hear was this statement he supposedly made after somebody told him about Pence and saying, well, you know, they're saying, hang Mike Pence. And he was like, well, you know, kind of similar to what he supposedly said to me. Maybe that's not such a bad idea. I don't know exactly what he said. That that was new. But I imagine we've seen the worst. And, you know, that's a problem if that's the worst. And keep in mind, here's another thing to throw out there. The committee has put a lot of stuff out about he didn't call in the National Guard. He didn't do this. It's unclear under the criminal law whether his failure to do that would be enough to be aiding and abetting. Generally speaking, failing to act cannot be aiding and abetting. And there's a whole lot of stuff that's come out in the last year about what the national who said what or did what with respect to the National Guard. There's a big fight between Michael Flynn's brother and the the guy who was head of the head of the guard that day. There's a lot there.
1: What about taking care that the laws be faithfully executed? What about that?
3: Is that, a, I don't know, the statutory equivalent to that. It's in the Constitution.
4: Violation of the Constitution, but it it doesn't necessarily violate a criminal criminal statute.
3: <laughs> right.
1: It's you grounds impeach for it. impeachment. Impeachment third time. All right, Victoria, you've been working on a lot of these issues, a lot of the efforts uh, to, you know, phony electors and, you know, the John Eastman efforts. Um, these guys seem to be sort of downplaying the prospect of a criminal prosecution on that front. What say you?
2: Let me... Uh, Answer and pose it to our guests once again, which is that we do know that the committee has subpoenaed and investigated a large number of these phony electors. And we know that they've been focusing very closely on the coordinated effort to get these electors to all meet on December 14th, to all submit potentially false documents to the National Archives and to other organizations or to other entities Is there a potential charge against Trump for doing that, for conspiracy to submit false documents, for conspiracy to kind of gather these false electors?
3: Matt, you want to go first? Sure.
0: Look, if it was a criminal act to submit these false electors, and the department clearly believes it potentially is because they've been public that they're investigating that. Then I would assume that anyone that was involved in a, consp- in a in a conspiracy to commit that act could be potentially criminally liable. Now you'd have to show that this was not an act that Eastman and some of the hangers-on and the the wackos in the Trump orbit were doing, absent his knowledge. You'd have to know that he. You have to show that he was involved in it and took an action to, to further it. But it seems to me it certainly could be.
2: Yeah. To basically, to go back to one of the kind of more interesting things that's emerging from these hearings is that. A lot of people are kind of seem to be focused on the big swing and the really kind of the big swing against Trump is that he uh, fomented an armed insurrection and led to violence. But there are plenty of other the committee seems to be teasing out plenty of other kind of smaller swings at Trump, all of which have criminal penalties attached. This fake elector thing is one of them. the potential wire fraud allegations. If he's if he's basically raising two hundred fifty million dollars off of people, you know, with false promises that the money is going to be used to prosecute election cases. So there are all of these other kind of small cuts. And I'm curious, those are the two that I've focused on. Have you noticed any of these other kind of small cuts that you think people should be digging in on or focusing on?
3: Not, I mean, I, I haven't. Uh, I, I, like I said, I was struck by the focus today about the raising of money, which strikes me as the, uh, that would be the if they did an indictment based on that and got and got Trump, that would be the Capone, the Al Capone approach. <laughs> we can't get you on the big thing, but we get you on that. So I haven't really, uh, I really haven't seen anything. And now, neither- but
4: let's let's just drill down. Into, I mean, I, I understand the Al Capone reference, but if they're raising you know two hundred fifty million dollars on a lie that the election was stolen, and then by the way. A million of those dollars goes to a foundation you know run by mark Meadows co run I guess by mark Meadows, and then you know two hundred thousand two hundred some thousand dollars somehow finds its way to Trump hotels, which I guess maybe were falling on hard times and needed the cash and By the way, you know, if this happened, he's preying on his most loyal supporters I mean, I think that's part of why this was effective because it's a way of saying. This guy never had your best interests at heart. He's exploiting you. Why isn't that a compelling criminal case? I understand it's not a coup, but...
3: One of the things you say at the beginning on this particular point, you talk about, well, if he knew his claims were fraudulent. I'm sorry, particularly when you're Donald Trump. I don't think it's enough to say he knew it was fraudulent because all the establishment rhinos told him that. I mean, it's, it's and that's why, look, it's not my position. I'm just telling you, as a matter of criminal law, I don't know how significant it is that his advisors, many of his advisors kept telling him there's nothing to it. And he chose to believe people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani.
4: I think it would be significant to a DC jury.
3: Well, that's the <laughs> other elephant in the room. You could, you know, you could charge him with carrying a large fish across state lines and he'd be convicted <laughs> by a D.C.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, you know, the problem on the political fundraising, you know, as sexy as it sounds at first blush. I mean, political fundraising is a complete swamp to begin with. I mean, read any of the hysterical email fundraising pitches you get from all sides. You know, by midnight, I need just one more dollar and, you know, we'll be over the top. And we'll, I mean, it's all hysterical, yeah. nonsensical stuff that would never hold up in things. a court yeah. of law. I mean, so it, to go down that road, you know, the defense is going to be, oh, you're going to come after us for this. What about, you know, the other guy? So, yeah, I definitely want to know more <laughs> about how those funds were um, accounted for and who they went to. But I'm just saying I can see all sorts of problems uh, going down that going down that boat, you know, and on the phony electors, not to pull too much to piss on too much of this. I mean, you had, for instance, in Georgia, where we know DOJ, the FBI has been interviewing the fake electors in Georgia. David Schaefer, who was the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party who convened that meeting to select the alternate electors, gave an interview that day That's been online, local TV, saying we're only doing this in the event that one of these lawsuits prevails and therefore we need to have an alternate set of electors. And I think some of the electoral slates that were sent of phony electors to the National Archives repeated that, that same language, that this is being done as a backup in the event. And it would seem to me that probably... Takes the sting out of trying to bring a criminal case out of it.
2: But not every single one of those. But not every single right, one. Right. But if
1: you're trying to show a coordinated effort by Donald Trump and some of those people being coordinated, you know, put that proviso out there.
3: Well, some had smart lawyers and some didn't, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But because, and that's very important what you mentioned, that uh, wiggle language uh, proviso is actually in writing, is my understanding. In some some cases,
1: it is, yeah.
3: Right, and to me, that completely defeats an 18 U.S.C. 1001 false statement charge. So the devil is always in the details.
2: Although, on the other hand, couldn't you also argue that the fact that a few of them did it demonstrates that they were cognizant of the risk? Absolutely. I'm just saying, how how does this play out? The committee, you know,
1: they've got, what, five more hearings, I guess. They're obviously getting a lot of media attention for this, but they'll be done by the end of this month. And then we get a final report, what, in September. And presumably that's when, if they're going to make criminal referrals, that's when they do it. It seems to me they almost have to make a criminal referral at this point, don't you think? I mean, honestly, who cares?
0: I, I, I find the My debate around <laughs> I, I find the debate around a criminal referral to be such a big nothing burger. You think DOJ needs a referral from Congress to know that there's no. something interesting that happened here that maybe they need to take a look at? It's not going to total bullshit. Yeah, it,
1: but it, I, it will be I, big I, news when they do it. It will, it be, will be big front page news, news that when they and, do it.
4: Right. But yeah, it shouldn't it be, be but, is what they're but, saying.
0: But but, yeah. but your profession's news judgment is not necessarily an indication <laughs> of the value of of,
4: of any
1: underlying huh. action. Huh. Okay, MSNBC so. analyst. Yeah.
4: All right. Let me ask you guys. So since a good portion of our listenership is going to be deflated by this <laughs> by this, this, conversation. By this uh, conver- yeah. very insightful conversation. This is not what they want to hear. (laughs) Uh, Let's move to Georgia for a second. (laughs) Let's talk about Fonnie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, who may be the last woman standing. First of all, is there anything that you've heard in the two hearings so far from the January 6th committee that might affect her case in any way, either strengthening it or weakening it? And we know that there has been some coordination. Uh, We reported that members of her team came up and met with the January 6th committee uh, a few weeks ago. But secondly, just I'd like to hear from both of you the relative strength of her investigation into Trump versus what you're hearing from the January 6th committee and the the possibility of a Justice Department indictment from, um, you know, Merrick Garland's Justice Department. Matt, why don't you start?
0: I haven't seen anything new, maybe I, I I missed it, but I haven't seen anything new in the first 2 days of hearings that impacted how I, I, I think about that case. And I'm to the extent I'm an election I'm an expert in any law, certainly not an expert in Georgia election law, but I do think Trump's actions in that one, specifically that phone call where to Raffensburger where he has where he names the exact number of votes he needs to get are potentially pretty damning. Whether that rises to a criminal act, I just don't know.
3: Saul? I haven't looked at the Georgia case in a while, and I have less trust in the ability of state and local prosecutors to avoid political influence. But I certainly didn't hear anything in these hearings. And of course, uh, that uh, struck me as significant. And of course, the Trump camp, Trump supporters have said from the beginning, this this was a settlement conference, which I've I imagine is debatable. And the conversation has to be heard in full in the context of that knowledge. I'm sorry, a
4: settlement what? conference?
1: Settlement of what?
3: Uh, a settlement of potential litigation. So that does they not- not
1: settling anything.
3: <laughs> that does not insulate you calling some even if it is a settlement conference, it doesn't insulate you from any crime that you commit during the conference. So I, you know, I've heard different theories about, if you listen to the whole tape, you know, he's not saying that he didn't really win the votes. He thinks he did win the votes. And so I don't know what they're going to do, but I don't I don't know of anything in the hearings we've seen so far that would affect it.
1: Well, there there actually was new there was new testimony from B.J. Park, who was the U.S. attorney in right. uh, in Georgia, who right. talked about getting a phone call or having a phone conversation with Bill Barr on December 4th, which was the day after Rudy Giuliani went before the Georgia state legislature and played what he described as this smoking gun video from the state farm center vote counting that he played a snippet of it saying that it showed smoking gun, a suitcase stuffed with Biden ballots being pulled out from underneath a desk late at night after everybody else had left. And this was evidence of fraud. Barr asks Pac, what about this? I'm gonna get asked by the president about this. Can you tell me what's going on? Pac investigates, has the FBI review the video, talk to the people who were there. And it turns out that suitcase stuffed with ballots was actually a legal lock box that was supposed to hold ballots that was being held there the whole time. And that, you know, everything Rudy Giuliani said to the legislative committee was false. And by only playing a snippet of the video, he left out, you know, the parts that totally contradict what he said.
3: I just don't know enough about Georgia criminal law. I yeah. just
1: well, I th- I, th- I think the the theory is that that can be either a predicate act in a uh, RICO indictment or a charge against Giuliani himself for... He was drunk. Well, let me ask uh, uh, so let me one
4: follow up on this because you've um,
1: we don't know that he was drunk during that hearing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: One follow up on this because you've invested, you've investigated a sitting president, uh, so you know something about presidential defences and immunities. Um, and so, I guess you know one of the looming uh, legal issues is if the grand jury in Fulton County does indict Trump, presumably. Trump's lawyers will very quickly try to get that case removed to federal court. They will assert all sorts of immunities. How strong will those kind of constitutional defenses be? And do you think in the end, the Fulton County DA would prosecute that case, um, or would it end up in federal court?
3: Now you're testing, you know, my knowledge of uh, federal removal jurisdiction. I'm not sure that this could be removed. And I don't, I don't to me, it's a question of uh, state criminal law. I don't I don't believe he would have immunity. You know, a president has immunity is generally agreed and understood generally that a president is immune from prosecution while he is president, uh, whatever it's for. But he's not president anymore. And it's a criminal case. So I I don't think immunity. uh, But These are
1: actions he took as president while he was president.
3: You still don't get to commit a crime if you're president. That's not what presidential immunity is is about. The immunity is, you know, as you know, based on separation of powers, you can't do this while he's president. But if he commits a crime, you cannot indict him while he is president. But if he commits a crime while he is president, I don't think that gets you anywhere. But I haven't thought about it in the state law context after an in indictment after he leaves office. But I, I don't think so unless I'm missing something.
1: There're going to be all sorts of these highly technical <laughs> issues of law and procedure that can flow from this that will give people like you plenty to chew over. Anyway, uh Matt and Saul, I want to thank you uh once again. This is a uh, ongoing process uh, these hearings. So we will um definitely want to have you both back as they play out, but thanks again.
3: Thank you guys. Thanks.